Good morning. The scripture this morning is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, and we're using the New International Version. And the Lord add his blessing to the reading. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through him. In the middle of Paul's rules for holy living, we find this almost added on phrase, and yet it's at the heart of everything. And give thanks. And give thanks. At the heart of this segment is this almost uh, postscript. At this season, I find myself thankful for so many things. I know many of you do too. It's not a time that Thanksgiving is conditional upon our economy. It's not a time when our position of thankfulness is dependent upon our economics personally. It's not a time when our ability to give thanks depends even upon our health. In fact, I'm going to propose to you that by giving thanks, we participate in our own health and in our own economy. I am going to suggest to you this morning that there is power in thankfulness as an act of worship, and I would, I would suggest to you that we don't have a Thanksgiving annually, although I love fall colors I love what the women do to decorate this place. I love the music. And Bev, what a fantastic prelude arrangement that just got my mind going so nicely this morning. I mean, wonderful. And and we had a brass section today. It was just amazing. I wish that could happen every week. It's so enlivening and exciting. But even when we... Even when half of you are gone and we don't have that, there's something about the act of worship itself that centers and focuses in thanksgiving. Because the act of worship acknowledges not just our inferiority to superiority, not just our creatureliness in the face of one who creates, not just our dependency Our posture of worship doesn't only acknowledge our sinfulness and our need of grace. These are only a part of the total picture. Our posture acknowledges that we can do nothing but acknowledge the goodness of God who is the giver of life and the giver of all sustenance and being. A God who is the ground of our very existence, however trite or miserable at the moment, however painful at the moment, 
however bereft at the moment. And I am not in any way trying to minimize those things. Grief, loss, hurt, pain, powerlessness, economic misfortune, these take a terrible toll because we feel them so keenly. But our spiritual forefathers knew something of wisdom. And their wisdom was this. In times of terrible tragedy or loss, they tore their clothing, they put on sackcloth, and smeared their bodies with ash. A little bit dramatic for our times, perhaps. We prefer nihilism, I think, in all of its forms. But what our ancestors did spiritually in their wisdom was to acknowledge the power of grief and loss and pain and misfortune and misery. To humble themselves or abase themselves or to recognize that in their state they were as dust. From dust we come and unto dust we can return. It's a death, a living death. And out of death and out of ash, the phoenix of thanksgiving arises. Because a God who is worthy of the title is worthy of nothing less than praise, no matter what we suffer. It's worth no less than praise, no matter what we feel. Is worth no less than worship because of those places of difference. His divinity, our humanity. His eternality, our mortality. His creative powers and our creatureliness, which he has blessed us with creative power of our own and procreative powers of our own. God, as the giver and lover of all, in his wisdom said, worship me not because I'm vain and because my ego needs stroking from time to time. He said, worship me because it will make you whole. Do you believe that? And the ancients of these wisdom, the wisdom of these ancients who smeared themselves in ash and did these acts of abasement was to lie prostrate before God and worship him because there was nothing else they could do. And God picks his people up. He picks them up. In our text for today, and I'm going to turn to it here shortly, we have... Rules for holy living. Now, this is Paul writing to a church. 
If Paul were alive today, I'm guessing that if he wrote you rules for holy living, that the principles of this chapter would remain very much the same. I'm guessing that the specifics might differ slightly. At the end of the chapter, I'm doubting that he would be admonishing you where your slaves were concerned. Or admonishing your slaves where you're concerned. I doubt at the end of this chapter that he would be telling all of you good wives to shut up and mind your husbands. I think he would be skewered and eaten for lunch if he tried to do so. I'm just kidding. It is a wise husband who listens to his wife. Colossians, our text for today, rules for holy living, three. In the middle of this, you find the negative, or beginning of this, you find the negative. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is classic Pauline theology. I have been crucified with Christ But I live because he's been resurrected. And when I say I've been crucified, I don't mean that I've put myself upon a cross. It means that the old man of sin living in me, the sin has been put to death. And what I have in Christ is eternal life. Doesn't mean I can't still choose sin or that old patterns don't come back too easily. It doesn't mean that I won't have a momentary lapse. What it means is that my choice is to be in Christ, and because I am in Christ, I am a new creation. So what is put to death, therefore, in the crucifixion of Christ is whatever belongs to the earthly nature. Impurities, lust, evil desires, immoralities, greeds, idolatries, etc. Because of these, we experience wrath. And this is true temporally as well as eternally. Many of these things are self-destructive, are they not? No. Okay. What he says is rid yourself of all these things and then he adds things that don't necessarily have to do with sexual morality or morality per se. He adds things like anger and rage, malice, slander and filthy language. Be renewed in the knowledge and image of your creator. Okay? And then he makes this famous statement. There's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Let the old divisions between you disappear. Don't live lives based in birthright. Live lives based in Christ, who is for all. And in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Don't you love how he puts that? He doesn't just declare us holy. He declares us dearly loved. And that is the basis of holy living. We love God and we live holy lives because of that love. Clothe yourself with compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has given you, forgiven you. 
And over all these virtues put love which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's the anecdote, of course, to perfectionism. That's the antidote to uh, antidote uh, to legalism. It is love that binds these things in our hearts, not just a rule that we follow to do so. And so having put this all together, he says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Isn't that something? If you look at all the qualities he asks us to embrace, compassion, kindness, humility, etc., if we were to all live all of those things, would we be living in anything but peace? Absolutely. We would be living in peace. And there's that tag, I said. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing. Here comes the worship piece I was talking about earlier. As you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude, that's thankfulness, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord giving thanks to God the Father through him. I can't possibly say it better than that. I can't possibly be more concise. I can't possibly be more direct. I can't make it any simpler for you than that. As we enter the act of worship, individually and corporately, daily hopefully, and especially on Sabbath, as we enter this time of corporate worship, as we share, as we recognize the goodness of God, as we sing these hymns of praise, as we speak these words, as we remember, as we recount stories, as we develop theology and an understanding, a framework of of our God and how we can understand him better, as we live lives in community, This simple peace is not so simple. It's based on choosing to be in Christ and embracing the virtues of compassion and forgiveness and love and hope. But if we choose to do that, if we choose to be in Christ and embrace the peace that he calls us to, and if we enter his gates with thanksgiving, if we will worship the Lord as he calls us to, with the spirit of thanksgiving. Healing will come. Hope will come. Quiet will come. Peace will come. Resource will eventually come. The goodness of the Lord is found. And the goodness of the Lord is ours in that moment. It's all about these three words, though. Can you do it? And be thankful.
To God in the highest, Hosanna and praise. Lord, we your people leave this moment of thanksgiving, praying that the spirit of thankfulness and gratitude will follow us as we worship you all the days of our lives. Amen.